This morning we will be looking at Luke chapter 16, verse 18. It's a very short text this morning. But it encompasses a very wide and broad subject. As always, if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord, even in 2015, is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 16. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Well, this morning in Luke chapter 16, we look at the subject of marriage and God's view of marriage. Marriage is a difficult subject to tackle because, to be frank, it is is very distracting. For some of us, when we talk of marriage, we think of what we wore on our wedding day or what we ate. For others of us, we think of marriage as depicted in films or movies or plays. And for others of us, perhaps for many of us, the word marriage is like a call to arms in the cultural war. What we have to understand from God's Word, though, is that marriage is not just a cultural battle. It is not just an event that we have. It is something established by God in His order for our good. And so this morning, I'd like us to look at three aspects of God's relationship to marriage as instructive to us. First, we will see that God created marriage. Second, we will see that God is sovereign in marriage. And then third, we will see that God has a purpose for marriage. God is the creator, the sustainer, if you will, and the one who gives purpose to marriage. Well, let's begin then by looking at our text here in Luke. I hope your fingers are nimble this morning because we are going to move around a little bit specifically to Matthew, a parallel passage. We'll think about the passage in Romans. We'll also look briefly at 1 Corinthians. But where I want to start is right here in Luke chapter 16 at verse 18. And this text here does not come to us in isolation. For many of us, we have in our Bibles these bold headings that describe what is next in the Bible text. And last week we looked at verses 14 through 17. And you may have a bold heading in your Bible, something like the law and the kingdom of God, Jesus and the Pharisees, something along these lines. And then perhaps your Bible may also have another heading above verse 18, something like divorce and remarriage. Now, what I would like you to do to help us to see where this is here is if you have this, if you have a finger... Put your finger over the top of the heading separating verses 17 and 18. Because, you see, even though I didn't treat verse 18 last week 
it really is a part of that same discourse. We're looking at it this week because there's so much material, it can stand on its own. But we have to understand that Jesus is speaking about divorce and remarriage in the context of his challenging the Pharisees about legalism. This is not two months later, or two weeks later, or even two hours later. This is a part of the same discourse. This is further solidified for us by a parallel passage in Matthew 19. If you have your Bibles, you may want to turn there. In Matthew 19, Jesus is teaching, and we see in verse 3, the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So there we see the Pharisees again bringing up this subject to test Jesus. This is in the context of a power struggle between men and God, between men who want to control the concept of marriage and God, the creator of marriage. And Jesus, when he answers this question, clearly states to us where God stands on the position. He says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Jesus answers the question by speaking in absolute terms. He says, everyone. He doesn't say some people. He doesn't say careless people. It applies to everyone. He speaks of a wife and a husband. Absolute terms that he has defined. It is not three people in this marriage, or four, or a dozen. It is not one man and one man, one woman and one woman. It is a husband and a wife. There are only two And you'll notice, too, that they belong to one another. It's not just a husband and wife. It is his wife and her husband. Jesus is outlining a principle here. Now, we have to understand this when we come to the subject of marriage because it is not like there is no standing law about marriage. Jesus has just given us one aspect of it. Now, here the treatment is very brief. If we want to see more about this, we go to Matthew 19. What Jesus says in Matthew is implicit in Luke, but let's make it explicit for ourselves. Jesus says, Have you not read in Matthew 19 and verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them, that is God, from the beginning made them male and female? So right from the beginning we see that God the Creator has created man male and female, husband and wife. And in this creation, it is very obvious God wants us to understand this. Have you ever wondered why in Genesis chapter 1 we see the creation days describing all of the things that have been created, including on day 6 the creation of mankind, man and woman, And then it's repeated again in Genesis 2. But it's like one of those film shots where you start in the panorama and then you zoom in. It's like a newspaper with a big, bold headline and then the text underneath it. Genesis 2 treats specifically the creation of man and woman. 
It's because the Bible here is highlighting for us the importance of the creation of man and how man was created and why man was created and to what end. And God looks and he says after he has created Adam, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, there is a temptation here in looking at that text. It's to see God as some kind of cosmic being that forgot to have a V8. Oh, if I only would have created two. I don't want him to be alone. What can I do to fix this? Nothing could be further from the truth. God has always intended to create man, male and female. All of creation is centered around this. And he is simply stating for our benefit that the reason why there is man and woman is it is not good for man to be alone. Any man who is left with the children when his wife goes on vacation can tell you that with great emphasis. It is not good to be alone. We need accompaniment. But it is more than that, though, isn't it? There is a deep bond of unity and union that exists between the man and the woman. Jesus says that he created the male and female, and they leave their father and mother, and they come together, and they become one flesh. They become one personality, as it were. One family unit. This is the way that God has chosen to organize humanity. It starts from the very beginning. God created marriage. He performed the first marriage, as it were. And he did so with a specific design in mind. Notice another thing. Adam is created... And he is already in relationship with God before his marriage. Our relationship with God is primary to our secondary and good relationship to our spouse. Do you see that? Marriage, which is good, comes second. It is an outworking and a help to our relationship with God. You see... Too often, I think, as we fight the culture wars and as we battle to see marriage upheld, we overestimate marriage. We underestimate the church. We underestimate our relationship with God. And we see our religion, we see our relationship with God as helping us in our marriage. And we are tempted to make the Lord the helper to raise our children. The helper to get along with our spouse. The helper to be a family going forward. When in reality, it is the family that works to point us toward God. Our relationship with God is primary. Now remember too that God designed marriage in a perfect world. Before the fall. Just because he said it is not good for man to be alone does not mean that things were messed up. This is before the fall. This is before any sin. Man and woman need each other. God is the one who has joined them together. And He has joined them so closely, so tightly, that they are to jettison other close family relationships. We see that here in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 5. For that reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. This relationship that God has created is our primary human relationship. 
It may not seem like it, but you have to understand that the bond and the relationship that you have with your spouse is stronger, more significant, and more important than that which you have with your children or your parents. Now, I don't mean to say that that relationship is not an important relationship, but there will come a day when your children will leave your house. I know sometimes that's hard to believe, but, but it will happen. They will leave your house, and they will start their own family, and they will have their own bond and their own relationship. You see, marriage is designed by God to be a strength and a bulwark of our relationships. Now, God consciously chose to make marriage as he did. It didn't come to him by accident. He didn't say, well, I happen to have Adam and I happen to have Eve. I guess we can call him husband and wife. No, he designed marriage to be between one man and one woman, and therefore he created one man and one woman for the first marriage. Because, you see, the Bible is also very clear about this in other areas of the Scripture. The Bible is not shy about condemning homosexuality as a sin. It's clear in Romans 1. It's actually very clear in Romans 1 that homosexuality is not a cause for the judgment of God. It is part of the judgment of God upon us for being sinners, for having a decadent society, for not seeking the Lord as we would. And so you see, marriage is not about rights. It's not about... wanting things. It's not even about happiness. It's not even about love. Marriage is about God's truth. And those who reject God's view and creation of marriage are not just nibbling at the edges. They are rejecting God and His truth. They're saying implicitly, the Bible isn't true. God didn't really create. God didn't really stay. God doesn't have control. We must understand this. Because you see, beloved, we expect that out in the world. But when those who claim to be God's children, bought by the blood of Christ, in the church, say that God's right most of the time, but not all of the time. Or I think, Society's changed that we need to change God. Then we attack the very foundations of the universe and of our faith. God cannot change. The Bible is very clear, not just about homosexuality, but about dishonorable passions. The same Bible that has Romans 1 and Leviticus 18 also has 1 Corinthians 6, which says, flee immorality. It has Ephesians 5, which says, Do not let immorality even be named among you. 1 Thessalonians 4, that this is the will of God for your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. You see, God is an equal opportunity judge. He judges everything according to the truth of His Word. Not according to what we would desire, what we think should be punished. He is the one who is created and designed Marriage. But God is also sovereign in marriage as well. 
He is the creator, so he is the one who is in control. The problem is, is that we don't want to let him be in control. Like so many areas of our life, like so many areas of society, we want to be in control. Now, how then do we seek to be in control? Well, I think the, the first place we should look is in our temptation to say that marriage does not really matter. Now, there's the most obvious manifestation of that. Those who decide not to get married and simply live together without the blessing of marriage. I think that perhaps all of us know someone who has made that choice. It's a denigration of marriage. It's saying we don't really need that covenant promise. We don't really need that bond that draws us together. After all, what's marriage more than a contract? We don't really need that formality. We don't really need to follow God's design. Now, it's easy in the church to criticize that, isn't it? It's not exactly something that in conservative evangelical churches we highlight. But there's a second aspect to the same problem. There's a denigration of marriage in the putting off of marriage as well. We say we don't need marriage, we won't live together, but we'll just put off marriage. We'll put it off till we have further education. We'll put it off until we're more financially sound. When I was married, it was ordinary and normal for people to get married in their mid-twenties. When my parents were married, it was not unusual at all for many people to be married in their early twenties. Now today... Many people are well into their 30s before they contemplate their first marriage. And especially in the church, because we have not stood and stood for the value of marriage for Christians, because we have not stood and say marriage is valuable, marriage is important, what we have ended up with, both outside the church and inside the church, is an entire generation of young men who spend their late 20s in their parents' spare rooms or basements playing video games and eating Cheetos. And we have an entire generation of women who are surprised and saddened when they finally get married at the age of 35 or 38 and realize they cannot have the children they wanted to have. And this is because the church is not standing for marriage. Now, undue delay of marriage is a sin. I'm not advising any of the 14 or 15 or 18-year-olds to go out and get married. But when you've graduated from college, and it's time to work a job, and you're in your 23, 25, 27-year range, you don't have to marry the first girl you see, but you don't need to wait for the thousandth girl either. Undue delay of marriage. There's also other ways in which we take control over marriage or attempt to. We live ungodly marriages before the world. As we read in Ephesians chapter 5, there, there is a harmony to marriage. And so we live marriages in which men lord it over women. They think that Paul's admonition for women to submit to their husbands means that the husband can act like a medieval king. And whatever he declares, 
is so. He's like Pharaoh in the movie. Because I said it, do it. Change the color of the carpets. Throw that out of the refrigerator. Quit your job. Move away. Do this with the children. There are limits to authority. But then women are no better. We have women who disrespect their husbands. Who gossip about them behind their back. And and say awful things about them in front of others while they're present. They denigrate their job, denigrate their abilities. Somehow we become like some kind of modern bad sitcom. If this is what the church stands for in marriage, who would want it? You see, when we stand for marriage, it's more than about rallies. It's more than about laws. It's about standing for God's view of marriage. Because, you see, our society is in a complete rebellion against God's authority. It views marriage as a convenience, something that can be brought on and taken off like a sport coat or a pair of slacks. All you have to do to prove this to yourself is to go to a grocery store. And on the racks of all of those glossy magazines, you don't even need to open them up to temptation. All you need to do is read the headlines. And you see, someone was married for three months, two months. One celebrity was married for 72 days, during which time she sold the rights to pictures and stories about her marriage that she made $17 million. I don't know how much per hour that is. But it's more than the minimum wage, I guarantee you. It's a view of marriage as some sort of convenience we can take or leave. We rebel against God's authority. We see the advent of no-fault divorce because we wouldn't want to say that someone is wrong. And we're surprised when families are ripped asunder. We're surprised when women are left discarded as the husband seeks a second or a third trophy wife. We're surprised when the woman leaves the home and leaves the father with the children. We say we are growing apart and therefore we must separate and leave. Someone gets a job in a different city and rather than work through the issues, we say, well, I guess the marriage is what we'll have to give. And we see divorce there. Now, this is not a 21st century American phenomenon. You see, the reason that the Pharisees asked Jesus if someone can be divorced for any reason, the reason this subject comes up in Luke 16 is because the Pharisees and the rabbis had been very busy making up all of their rules as to what counted as a sufficient reason to be divorced. And one very prominent school of thought was that it was very easy to get a divorce. If your wife made a supper that was burned or not tasty, divorce her. I'm not making that up. If you don't like the way your husband looked at you this week, sorry. If you don't think that your spouse has the proper look or the proper weight or the proper speech pattern, well, then maybe you can trade up to a new model, like trading in a car. You see, our entire society is built on this principle that marriage doesn't matter and that I can do what I want. It is a rejection of God, a rejection of His authority, and an exaltation of ourselves as God. 
But that doesn't mean that marriage isn't real. This morning when I got up, it was quite foggy. Perhaps it was for you. And that fog descends, and it's difficult to see when you're in the fog, isn't it? But you know what? I didn't doubt there was a road just because the fog obscured it from me. That's what marriage is like. God's view of marriage doesn't disappear because our society and the church at large pumps fog from the fog machine to confuse us. It doesn't change. Because God doesn't change. Now, Jesus' words here are hard, aren't they? He says, basically, you can't get a divorce. You need to be very careful about thinking about divorce. If you get a divorce, you're actually committing adultery. And we say, how could anybody live up to that? You know who else said that? The apostles. Look at Matthew 19 and verse 10. After Jesus describes for them what is involved with marriage, they look at Jesus and they say, well, maybe we shouldn't get married at all. That's really hard. They say in verse 10, if such is the case with a, of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. How do we address this? What we have to do is reverse our thinking. We have to run counter-cultural. And that goes deeper than thinking about who are the people marrying, and it goes to what is a marriage. A marriage is a lifelong commitment. It is a covenantal bond that is only severed in extreme circumstances. We'll look at those in a minute. What it means is, instead of going along with the flow in our society, and whenever we have any troubles, and looking and saying, you know, I just don't know how we could possibly make this work. As Christians, we must look at our troubles when we're in bankruptcy, when our children are out of control, when we're having financial challenges, when we have difficulties getting along, and we have to look and say, I don't know how we can not afford to make this work. We're stuck together. We've got to work it out. We've got to make improvements. We've got to seek help. We've got to move forward. We can't stay in this spot, and we certainly can't go backwards. If the church does that, then that would be really countercultural. That would be something your neighbors would see, your co-workers would see, your friends, your family members. What a testimony to your submission to God and His rule and your hope in Jesus. How more personal can you get than your marriage? You may be sitting here this morning and saying, but pastor, you don't know all of the problems in our marriage. You don't know how difficult it is. And I say to you, I may not but God has given you no better arena to show your hope in Jesus than challenges in your marriage. Does this mean that a marriage can never be broken? Does this mean that no matter what is done, we can never obtain a divorce? It seemed like that at first glance from Luke 16, verse 18. But Jesus speaks in other places, and Paul does as well, and we must take the whole counsel of God. So our high-level principle is divorce is bad. Divorce is to be shunned if we can. Marriage is God's way. But in Matthew 
chapter 5 and verse 31, Jesus says, I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus is taking virtually the same statement in Luke and repeating it in Matthew, but adding a caveat. And what he is saying is that adultery, sexual immorality, so harms the bond of covenantal marriage that then divorce is permissible. Now notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say you must divorce your wife. You must divorce your husband. He says it is permitted on those grounds. And so even in that dire strait, we are called by the broader principle of marriage to pursue reconciliation and repentance. Now, that will not always be possible because one who has sinned that grievously may not be willing to repent. And if someone is in unrepentant adultery, what can you do? The bond has been severed as with a knife. There is a second exception here for divorce. We find it in Paul, in his letters. Specifically, we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is describing a very difficult situation. A situation in which a Christ, someone, a married couple, one spouse becomes a Christian. And from that point on, there is a, a clash of worldviews. And the Christians are asking, can't we get a divorce on this instance? Can't we leave because there's such a difference of life? And Paul says, no. If the unbelieving spouse wants to stay with you, no, you can't go. He says, but if you are a believer and your spouse is an unbeliever and deserts you, then you are free. Desertion is another grounds for divorce. And I don't think we need to parse all of the elements of this. If you say, well, Paul says if you're, if you're married to an unbeliever and they desert you. What happens if you're married to a believer and they desert you? I would argue that a husband that deserts his wife has given prime evidence that he's not a believer. The wife that deserts her husband has given prime evidence that she thinks nothing of God's law and she is an unbeliever. But you see, again, this is an extreme case, just like the adultery. This is not something we should be experiencing every day. It's not after you have tallied 23 fights. It's not after they have spent so much of your money. These are very confined cases. But you see, the other problem we have with marriage is not just divorces. Marriages can be harmed by damage. Now, not all marriages are going to be picture perfect, but as we have difficulty in marriage, it affects our life and following the Lord. And what we have to do is focus upon God's bigger picture. Not all marriages are going to be picture perfect. One of the things that I enjoy most in premarital counseling is early on when I say to the young, loving couple they can't stop making eyes at each other, you do realize uh, you're going to fight. No. You do realize the day will come where one of you will slam the door in the other's face. Oh, never. 
We'd never fight now. Well, fast forward a little bit, and we all have our tales of knockdown dragouts, right? But the point is, is that not all marriages are picture perfect. We shouldn't expect that. We should expect marriage to be like life, where we sin and we wrong and we have to repent and confess and reconcile. We should expect that. That's the real world. Look at how God uses bad marriages. Abraham and Sarah. Look at the mess that Jacob had. And God used that marriage. The other thing we have to remember is that God can heal bad marriages. If you're struggling right now in your marriage or you know someone who is, and you're not sure that you can make it, and you're not sure that it's even possible, let me give you a prescription. Take two Old Testaments and call me. Look at the marriage of God and Israel. And look how over and over and over again Israel fails God. And look at all of the patience that God exhibits with Israel. Look at how God keeps calling Israel back. Look at how God keeps thinking the best of Israel. You see, this is what gives us hope. There's not enough hope in the world. Because hope is only found in seeing the grace of God at work. And one of the places we see that is in marriage. There's another thing that we must understand as we talk about marriage. It is true in God's word that a marriage should not be ended, that you should not be divorced other than for adultery or desertion. As soon as I say that, some of you have been divorced. Or some of you know someone who has been divorced. And what you may hear, what Satan may whisper in your ear is, you have committed the unpardonable sin. You can't be a Christian. Look, the pastor just said, you were divorced for the right reason. That's not what I said. There is no unpardonable sin. If there's pardon and redemption in Jesus for murder and lying, and violence, and laziness. How is there not grace in marriage? Can you go back in time in a time machine and fix things? No. So you must do what you do in every other area of your Christian life. You must move forward and seek God's forgiveness and grace and seek by every strength that the Spirit gives you to follow God's Word from this point That's what we are called to do. Well, then the question comes to us, who can I marry? How do I avoid the difficulties of marriage? The first and most basic principle is that we are to marry in the Lord. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 not to be unequally yoked. He also says in 1 Corinthians 7 that we are free to marry in the Lord. Now, think about this the way we just talked about the principle of desertion. If there is struggle and strife when one comes to Christ after marriage, so much so that someone might desert the marriage, how can you expect it to work when right from the get-go you're not on the same page with respect to the world, eternal destiny, and Jesus Christ? You're fooling yourself. Every item that comes after that is bound up in your worldview. 
You may think you will agree, but you won't. You won't agree about children and how to raise them. You won't agree with them. You won't agree about the priorities of a job. You won't agree about how to spend money properly. You won't agree about what you do with your time. It will sneak out and bleed out in every area of your life. But once we understand that principle, there is a freedom. So we want to think about marrying in the Lord. And then secondarily, we want to think about having underlying principles that are the same, walking in the same direction. Because you see, marriage stands as a foundation for us. And the storms of life will hit. Illness will come. Financial ruin will come. Challenges with children and relationships will come. And so we want to know, are we thinking the same thoughts? Are we moving in the same direction? Do we have the same principles? And so young people, you who are not married yet, you don't have to worry about whether or not you can get divorced. What you do need to think about is, is this person that I'm thinking of marrying, do they share the same principles that I do spiritually? Do we think we would attend the same church? Do we have the same views of baptism? Do we have similar views about worship? But it goes even beyond that. Do we have the similar ideas for children and how to raise them and how many to have and what to do? Do we want to live in the same kind of place? It makes it difficult to be married when one lives in the city and one lives in the country. We have to think about these principles. But we, again, within these principles, there is natural freedom. So natural affections and affinities are important. Sometimes I think when we preach about marrying in the Lord and marrying according to principles, what people hear is, is that I should find the person that I am least attracted to and most annoys me. And to really prove I'm a Christian, I could marry them. No, there is nothing wrong with enjoying looking at your spouse with wanting a picture of them on your desk, with wanting to be around them, with liking their laugh, with enjoying the way they speak. There is nothing wrong at all with that. All you have to do is read the book Song of Songs to see this. There are underlying principles, and then within that, freedom. Thirdly and finally, we see that God has a purpose for marriage. God has a purpose for marriage first as a blessing for us. Marriage provides mutual help and assistance. Let's be frank. We all need encouragement, don't we? We all need help. We may think we can do it on our own, but we need that encouragement and help and assistance. And God has given to us marriage to fill that void to provide that encouragement, to help us, because we are built for relationships. And so God has given us that first and foremost primary human relationship to bind us to each other. This is a blessing even to society at large. Marriage provides stability. It provides stability for children, even for the state itself. Think about all of the current mess all of our laws are in now because of a redefinition of marriage. Family law is a mess. Inheritance law is a mess. All of our laws are topsy-turvy because we are trying to accommodate a false and fake view of marriage that, quite frankly, not only does not, but cannot 
bear children. It is a mess. And isn't there a blessing that comes to us in marriage of just joy? Isn't there a joy in being with your spouse? Isn't there a happiness, a calmness that comes over us from knowing that we have a partner, a companion, someone to be there through the highs and through the lows? It's often been said that when you are married, your joys are doubled and your sorrows are halved. This is a blessing to us. But there's also another purpose that God has for marriage, and that is as a picture for us. It is a picture of God's covenantal relationship with His people. It shows the commitment that God has. You see, the picture of marriage shows forgiveness and patience. We begin to understand more about how God relates to us when we can see it in light of the everyday relating we have to do to our spouses. We see the necessity of forgiveness, the necessity of repentance, the necessity of faithfulness. All of these Christian principles are evidenced in marriage. There's another grand and glorious picture in marriage. And that is Christ and the church. We saw it in Ephesians 5. We read earlier, there is a picture of Jesus and the church in marriage. Now, our temptation is to look at that text and to find in it a recipe for how we should treat our wives and how we should treat our husbands. As if somehow the relationship of Jesus to the church is there to help us in our marriages. It is not primarily. That picture is there so that we might see and understand the depth of what Jesus has done for his church. Our marriage points to that picture. You see, the truth is that our primary relationship is with Christ. The church is actually forever. Marriage is not. Jesus tells us that in heaven, they will neither give nor be given in marriage. Marriage is a picture of the depth of Jesus' love, of Jesus' commitment, and of Jesus' sacrifice for his church, for you. That is what we see. That is why when we look in Revelation chapter 19 and we see that glorious wedding feast of the Lamb, we see the end toward which the Lord is pointing us. We see the end toward which He has even established marriage. That we might be in deep, committed relationship with Him. and That we might share the joy and the blessing that comes from being the Lord's. Not just now but for all eternity. Let's pray.